Hi everyone, welcome to the Singapore Noodles podcast where we believe in a world where Singaporeans are proud of our rich and diverse food culture and play an active role in keeping traditions alive. I'm your host, Pamelia Chia, and today I'm joined by Vasuntara Ramasamy, who is a culinary teacher and also a MasterChef Singapore contestant. So in this chat, we talk about how the palate of Singaporean Indians differ from Indians in India, why Singaporean Indians might feel a sense of inferiority towards their food, and we also have a very spicy discussion of the New York Times Singaporean Chicken Curry Saga. If you're not aware of what went on during this saga, basically um, there was a journalist, Clarissa Wei, who demonstrated how to prepare what she called a Singaporean chicken curry on the New York Times cooking Instagram account. And that led to a lot of backlash and a lot of people criticizing um, her rendition of curry, saying that that is not what Singaporean chicken curry is at all. So this conversation is one of the longest I've ever had on the podcast so far, but I've really enjoyed it so much. And I hope that you learn as much as I did from Basun through this chat. I remember when I first met you, you seemed a bit lost and then you you were mm. talking about, I think back then you were cupcakes and curries, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and then you were talking about how you felt that on Instagram, um, people love things that are really like, you know, cute and like aesthetically pleasing. And I think you, you had the sense that you didn't know how if you were to continue posting about Indian food, how would, how would that get traction? Yeah. So, I mean, I've seen that now you've completely embraced this part yeah. of your heritage. So how, how did that transformation happen? Uh, I still think people go for things that are cute. I mean, um, I just had to accept that uh, it will never be a product that is for the masses. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not that kind of person to to be, uh, and I'm not doing it for popularity. So, but there is, uh, I mean, once during the pandemic, so the pandemic shifted everything actually because uh, when I did the no grind dosa, it was mm-hmm. a revelation because mm-hmm. I realized the feedback was so positive. I I just didn't realize that so many people loved dosa. Mm. And there's such an intrigue for it because even though we find Thorsa, people don't understand the uh, the workings of it. So when sourdough was taking off, uh, everybody was making sourdoughs and then banana breads and, you know, they were stuck. So when people did the no grind and it offered a solution where you don't need a grinder, which is the the, the biggest hurdle I feel to cooking uh, or making Thorsa's. Uh, because there's a lot more technicality involved when it comes to grinding <clears throat> because of the positive feedback and how people embraced it and because and the more people did it because it's something new and the more people posted about it then other people were motivated so it's more of um, just getting people to uh, because they're familiar with those so it showed me that actually people are willing to try it if they are it the product is made a bit more accessible mm. Yeah, uh, you talked about familiarity, like uh, when it comes to the popularity of something, yeah. right? And how mm. it will be accepted by the mass media. So I also know that you um, talk a lot, uh, talk a lot on your Instagram about how uh, it seems as though Singaporeans only know a few Indian classics, mm. right? Like your roti prata, like your thosai. Yeah. So in that sense, how can we bring all of these, you know, more diverse and um, more like dishes that you can only find at home to the mess to the messes. So yeah, that's a very good question. Um, 
it still is that way um, because I feel there need to be more voices out there uh, um, about the, the, okay, the discrepancy between what people know as Indian food and what we eat at home is the same for many cuisines mm. because what is a restaurant style cuisine is based on uh, what they can churn out in terms of volume. Mm. And usually they go for a formula that's more um, easily acceptable by people as well. So the two things uh, naturally dictate that only certain kind of dishes get out there. But also because I feel that in Singapore, we haven't arrived, for especially for Indian cuisine, where we look at um, deeper into uh, what is Indian cuisine, the regional cuisine. And it's just starting in India. Mm-hmm. It has started. And in restaurants like the Bombay Canteen, and there was a revolution because uh, they started the trend in India. And even just in India itself, people don't really talk about regional cooking or home mm-hmm. cooking. Um, but everybody will tell you, my mom will make the best food, yeah. even though this is the way. Uh, it is a widely accepted fact that home cooks are better. And in fact, when you go to restaurants, even in India, the chefs, when they do research, they actually go to uh, home cooks mm. who are known and then they get inspiration. So uh, it's something that we haven't thought about in Singapore. And partly because of the history of Indian food and in Singapore is slightly different. I mean, um, I think because the politics and the socioeconomics are quite different. And when you go back to, say, um, how we arrived and the food here, people don't talk about Singapore Indian food. And what is Singapore Indian food? Actually, very much of our cuisine is what you would call uh, a diasporic cuisine. Mm-hmm. Um, and the awareness for that is not there. So um, how I plan to bring more awareness is um, just... One is through the classes that I have, which is mm-hmm. Dorset classes, and we talk about food. And then I get back, I mean, feedback from people on what they like. And there is still that, uh, I won't say lack of awareness, but more of, say, what people know is what they eat in, outside in restaurants, which is fair enough. But I, I plan to do uh, a little bit more of pop-ups and private dinings where you do food that you don't really get in restaurants. And because mm-hmm. when you do it small scale, you have a little bit more flexibility in the menu that you put out. Mm. And because people know me for Those, I can take a bolder step and introduce dishes slowly uh, that are different. And I think there needs to be more talk about uh, techniques of cooking in Indian food rather than dishes. Mm. Uh, because uh, And that's the feedback I get from Instagram as well when I do polls. So it's, it's also my personal journey uh, because when I started cooking, um, People have these stories that actually uh, their moms are great cooks, my grandmas are great cook. I didn't have such a story. I didn't have anyone to learn cooking from, to be very mm. honest, even though we eat Indian food at home. So when the question comes about uh, what is the food that I like or what is Indian food, I had to start from scratch. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's very much, I, I use my journey as an inspiration to also look and, and not say educate, but pass on information and I'm slowly going to do that with the newsletter. It's more like basics, like what are the vegetables that we use in mm-hmm. Indian cooking? What can we use it for? What is a puriyal and how is it used mm-hmm. uh, you know, across the South Indian? So I only focus on South Indian cooking and that's also been something of a bold leap forward because most people, when they say Indian cooking, they will do yeah. the entire uh, subcontinent. And I feel... I will be doing a disservice to other regional food if I want to do that. I mean, I can if I want to, 
but I, I, there's not enough a lifetime to just focus mm-hmm. to know just about Tamil cuisine itself. Yeah, there is so much, um, and there's so much depth to Indian food. It is so complex that I, I felt that I would just focus on South Indian food. Um, mm. and but in Singapore, it's important to start somewhere that people are familiar with. Mm, uh, as a jumping off point. Yeah. Yes, but slowly because there are a lot of similarities yet differences. And because people haven't asked the hard question of what is Singapore Indian food, we just mm. know we're different. But why are we different? What makes us different? Um, and I think the question comes from really, it's just like soul searching. Uh, what makes our food different? And uh, and I do feel that there is a little bit of a uh, for the lack of a better word, uh, an inferiority complex to a certain extent that our food is not as good as food from, say, directly from India because mm. it's different. Um, so yeah. there hasn't been that like pride in who we are. We love certain kinds of food, but why we like that? Why is it different? Nobody celebrates being, say, Singapore Indian or Malaysian Indian because mm. it's, you know we're very similar. So that hasn't come about because maybe people don't write and talk about what is. But uh, that has been a very interesting journey too because um, food is very personal to me because uh, I use food as a way to understand who I am. Mm. And I've been very blessed um, um, because I have... My, my maternal grandfather is directly from India. So mm. when I grew up younger, I ate food that he liked and it's very a traditional South Indian kind of food. And then later on uh, in my later years, uh, when I stayed with my paternal grandmother, um, she's from Malaysia. So the mm. food that I grew up with uh, at that point was a bit more Malaysian Indian. Mm. And it was something I never thought about. Uh, it's only later on when I thought about what I ate in their homes while growing up, then I realized because of where they come from, and their backgrounds, their historical backgrounds and, and things like that. The food is different. Uh, but I never put it together because, you know, you think Indian food, yeah, you use spices, you use uh, curry powder, so it's the same. So mm. only when I broke it down, I realized it's completely different. So using... Um, and when I thought about food that way, then I realized that actually you have to approach it in two different ways because you can't say Singapore food is different. So it's just like uh, any kind of diasporic cuisine, like uh, American Italian food. It is it can hold its own because the people have their own story. So by saying it's not Indian food um, or not Italian food, you negate the people's experiences as well mm-hmm. because the food is rich in cultural context, but yeah. different, of course. Mm-hmm. So what is Singapore Indian food? Um, even if you if you were to put a label to it and you were to put a box, a neat box around it, what is it? Um, why is our food so different? It's not just about the intercultural mixes that we get from the different races, but it is the social politics mm-hmm. and the the immigration of Indians and, and how it affected cuisine. So cuisine, I mean, food that because we eat it every day, uh, over long term, it reflects our landscape, the geography, the climate, as well as um, the, 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 the social context. So if uh, I mean in the early nineteenth uh, century when Singaporeans arrived, and eighteenth century even later, actually nineteenth century when British brought uh, early labor, it was indentured labor and coolies. Mm-hmm. And in Singapore, the very first group of people would have been the um, prison labor yeah. from India. 
So the food that they cooked would very much have an impact on how we eat as Singapore mm. or Malaysian Indians. And it's based on where... So they cooked Indian food based on the resources they had in, say, in plantations, in estates, uh, rubber estates, rail, uh, railroad, uh, I mean, uh, the quarters and things. And some of these uh, workplaces are located further inland from the coast. So you cook with what you have and survival becomes a, a, a necessity. So, I mean, it's a necessity, whatever you cook. So you start cooking with like things like um, sardine curry is very much a Malaysian Indian, Singapore Indian thing. And it's something that people don't think about. How did we go about making sardine curry? And when people say sardine curry, it is so nostalgic mm. uh, that um, and it's not just for Indians. I think yeah. uh, people who or have Chinese roots. As well. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a Malaysian connection. Mm. Um, and um, my when I grew up, my my maternal grandfather who's from India, we never cooked sardine curry, mm. never. I've never even seen it before. So can um, seafood, especially, it's it's not very much a big thing in maybe the uh, the heartlands, the, the yeah. deeper areas. But it's very much a thing wherever the British went. It's a mm. colonial remnant because of factories and the after post-war and the things that we used to eat with sardine curry like you know sardine sandwiches when I grew up uh, when you go for a picnic yeah yeah so it's so much a part of our cuisine that we share with uh, the other cultures as well but how did it become such an Indian thing Mm. Uh, and it's a very interesting question that when I dug up um, I'm still digging up but it's possibly to do with the factory about the uh, Ayam brand factory that is very near uh, an Indian estate, mm. uh, the production factory. Possibly people worked there and I, um, and uh, they went back with canned sardines. I mean, that's how, and it becomes very much part of cuisine in that area. Mm. And it's, it's, it's a shelf-stable product. So yeah. you can always have sardine curry and it's available, it's cheap um, and it's, you can't go wrong because it's already pre-cooked with some sauce inside. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you can't screw it up. Uh, so you just add curry powder and you add things that you know that make up, say, a fish curry. You have a decent meal with rice. Mm. Um, and rice too. Like uh, It's been a very interesting journey in, in very Malaysian Indian homes and people who have ancestors from Malaysia, which most of us do, uh, and they migrated here. We eat jasmine rice. Mm. But if you're from India, you all the other one is the parboil purungal arsi they will call it. Um, but uh, Indian Indian homes don't really eat jasmine rice for yeah. their food. It is very much a Southeast Asian thing. So sometimes mm. these things, because you do it every day, you don't question it. It's only when you sit down and you think about it and you reflect, oh, why do we do that? Mm. Uh, it, it you realize that it is actually because of uh, the history. Yeah, uh, and the conditions that people arrive, the, the living, and all these stories haven't had a platform yet. Mm. Yeah, uh, I yeah. agree. Yeah. There are storybooks written on it. I mean, not storybooks, like novels. It's mm. part of a narrative. But when you dig up, it's really much of, let's say, you have to read the British account of Robert, what they mm. ate. They, yeah. And because they weren't literate, their purpose was just to eke out a living. Mm. And they stayed in estates. There's uh, not a strong perspective written from their, from their perspective, what they eat, mm-hmm. uh, which is very, I find it very fascinating because yeah. uh, we've been in this uh, foodscape for so long, yet people don't quite uh, write about, 
Malaysian Indian Singapore Indian food from that perspective it's very mm. much from the perspective of say from India mm. so we eat like sambar and idli and those are the the uh, things that we do but there are also other things that people from India don't eat yeah uh, and there's and there's so many interesting stories like for example in the plantations um I've heard stories from my father and all uh, during the monsoon seasons you have uh, uh, monitor lizards which are plentiful. They'll come out. Um, and so one of the things that they eat is uh, they call it Udumbukari. Udumbu is your monitor lizard. Uh, mm. And then he talked about how how they would clean the monitor lizard. Oh wow, that's so fascinating. You know, I I yeah. used to live in an estate where we mm. used to have a lot of monitor lizards. Yeah. I didn't know that people actually caught them in Singapore and ate them. This is in Malaysia in the plantations. So like in India technically people eat a lot of meat. Um and this is this was part of their diet. It's just not recorded because so another thing about Indian food is you can't talk about Indian food without talking about caste. Mm. Uh, it is so uh, intertwined in everything that people do that they don't think about it as a, a derivative of or, uh, of caste. Um, but uh, these things like iguana, and even I was talking to someone who lives in the deep south, they eat pelican um, poultry that you get during certain seasons because it's what you get in your landscape. So you eat what you have, isn't mm-hmm. it? Um, all these things are taboo. Because it's sort of that non-vegetarian food is very much something that only yeah. a person who's not of higher caste eats. Yeah. So you don't proudly declare. And even until now, it's so food is so political yeah. because with the landscape, the political landscape becoming very much uh, religious, yeah. uh, the, the food consumption patterns of people who are not Hindus yeah. um, mostly Muslims mm-hmm. uh, are being under scrutiny uh, scrutinized so like it, um, what they eat it's not something that people will go around saying I eat beef at home yeah yeah, yeah. I read about that I read about how some of the Dalits mm. like the lower caste people would would actually eat dead buffalo and things yeah. like that I mean that is traditionally not eaten by people from the upper caste right I well, I, okay, sometimes you have to read between the lines. I do believe people eat many things, uh, but they don't declare it because it is sort of like saying uh, I'm from a different caste or it's taboo um, mm. because people don't even step into a home of a different caste person. Even to this day and age mm. when you travel to the deep south, there is a lot of... Um, I won't say animosity, more of um, I am not very sure of the person. They don't mingle. There's no overlaps in their uh, in their social spheres. Mm. Can we dial back and talk a little bit about what you mentioned about diasporic yes. cuisine? <clears throat> so you said that Indian food in Singapore is viewed very much as a diasporic cuisine, mm. but um, and that's why there is a sense of inferiority, mm. right? Where people compare it to food from mm. India. But, you know, think, looking looking from a broader perspective, I feel that all cuisines in Singapore are pretty much yes. diasporic, even Chinese yes. cuisine, Malay cuisine. So where do you think that inferiority stems from? Because I don't think, you know, say a Chinese Singaporean would feel like our food is inferior to what comes from China. Mm. Good question. Um I think uh, there are possibly, off the top of my head, I can think is one is uh, 
the people who cook this cuisine are not someone who is, say, they're not of a lower caste, but people who are labor, who came. Um, and so uh, perhaps their cooking style uh, varied very much, veered very much from, say, the food back in India. The, the, the mm. taste, like, for example, like salted fish, ikan bilis and all these things, is very much eaten in India, but not in such a, a scale that we eat it here. Uh, so that mm-hmm. the palate is different. So perhaps I think it's deep down partly to do with the cast, um, like they're mm-hmm. different people. Um, and also perhaps because the history of uh, Singapore Indians is one that I think for a long time when people came, they never considered Singapore home. Um, mm. So it was always Singapore is like a stopover, you earn money and then yeah. you go back for in Singapore Indians. For Chinese, it's very mm-hmm. different because they didn't want to go back because of civil unrest. Whereas for mm-hmm. Indians, they've been here for so long, actually from 13th century and even earlier, that they just send back money and it's just a men who came. Um, and the in, I would say, the, I wouldn't say it's an inferiority complex, but it is something that we don't talk about. And I feel is because we've always been told our food is different. Uh, from what is from India and maybe people haven't made sense of food because we do talk about diaspora but we don't talk about it in the food sense mm. um, like well, how is it different because on the surface it looks very much similar mm. because we eat yeah it does uh, because we eat the tosa the sambar mm. and things like that but our palate is very different how is the palate different between a Singaporean Indian and an Indian Indian okay so like like I was saying, like salted fish, uh, the dried salted fish and all that, uh, ikan bilis is uh, very very accepted in Malaysian in, and Singapore Indian cuisine. Um, whereas in India, only in the coastal areas mm. where they A have, and seafood. I don't even see, yeah, yes, mm. uh, and even then, see, because dried seafood is more of um, people who are fishermen mm. uh, and they eat, have access to all these things. So like, for example, like, um, there's all this talk about fish head curry not being part of Indian cuisine. And I find that a bit funny and puzzling because if you are a fisherman and you catch mm. fish and your off cuts is fish head, why would you throw it away? It just makes no mm. sense to me. So to so people do eat these things. I have seen it. It's just that it's not talked about. And again, uh it's a caste system. Uh, it is a taboo on food that is seen to be not as, say, uh, eaten by someone who is more educated, mm-hmm. wealthy. So it becomes like you don't want people to say, oh, you eat these things. I don't want to go to your house. Uh, yeah. yeah. It's fascinating to note the differences between Indian culture and you know Singaporean culture yeah. because in Singapore, it's like, our cuisine is not a tablecloth kind of affair, mm. right? I mean, we, we relish in the fact that, you know, it's all off cuts, you know, like we, we love offal, we love, we embrace all these, yeah. um, you know, dried salted fish, preserved vegetables kind of thing. Um, so it's very interesting to note how people in India think of it as, you know, very reflective of status. Okay, so that comes with the concept of... Um you will often see this uh, purity. Uh, again, it's to do with the Brahmins who instill this idea mm. that food needs to be cooked, sanitized, 
because they very much worked in the temples and they're seen as someone who is uh, clean, holy. you know, yes, holy and clean. So it is, I think it's just a way of differentiating yourself from other people. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a very political tool and that has stood the test of time even now. So when you look at vegetarian restaurants, uh, you will see not just vegetarian, you'll see the word pure vegetarian. Ooh, in Singapore as well? Yes. Um, oh. And that concept comes from India as well because mm-hmm. this, uh, this to- as, I mean, all these tiffin joints, you call them, mm-hmm. those that sell dosa and idli. So in India, traditionally, um, it's run by uh, Brahmin families who are traditionally cooks. Mm-hmm. They cook for temples and then they branched out when they moved to different cities and they mostly come from ODP in, in Karnataka. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the coast and then when they branched out and they continued running the business so they became the families that be, uh, own these big tiffin restaurants mm. and then uh, families who only want so the word pure I believe comes from the fact that um, it's, it's to show that this vegetarian restaurant is also not just food that is vegetarian and it um, uh, follows the rules and regulations of Brahmin food which is less onions and garlic and things mm-hmm. like that. It's not not just that, but it's also cooked by Brahmins. Aren't Brahmins like, you know, priests and like religious teachers? and Yes. Um, so the people who worked in temples. So they need to employ cooks. So they're different. Um, uh, even within a Brahmin, um, say, group, there are many, many sects. Mm-hmm. It's very complicated. Oh, uh, and different... Wow. Brahmins from different towns have different cuisines because of okay. where they are. And in, yes, um, and uh, a lot of them were advisors to the kings because they were uh, they advised mm. them on religious affairs. And um, yeah, but they're cooks. So like weddings, if you have a wedding in a temple, the food will be cooked by Brahmins, by that same family yeah. who has been cooking for many, many years. Mm. Do you... Do you think that even in Singapore, caste plays a big part in the way people perceive food? I think you can't escape caste mm-hmm. if you are Indian. Yeah. But only if you think about it. Uh, I, I, okay, we, we don't really practice caste in Singapore. But it is something that is so deeply ingrained. So you would grow up learning about caste and what caste you belong to? No, we don't. Okay, we watch it on TV. We watch it in movies. Mm. Um, but we don't really have a very deep understanding because people don't talk about it. Mm. For me, it's because my grandfather kept his caste name mm-hmm. uh, to show because he is a deva. Mm. Uh, it's an identity because that's what it was for people. But then later generations, his children and us, we don't follow it because it doesn't have any meaning in Singapore. Um, but when you go back to India, you're reminded of who you are because they will always ask you where you're from, where your ancestors from, who you really are. Mm. Um, because I think uh, outside Singapore, people have a, a, a very hard time understanding that Singapore is multicultural, mm. that we have ancestors from many generations. Um, because in a country like India where you have, not say, I won't say monoculture, but more majority are all Indians. They yeah. all look like each other, but they might practice a different faith. Mm. Uh, so it is very, a different concept completely. Yeah. Yeah. You talk about caste mm. as an identity, um, but is there a negative um, 
meaning attached to caste. I mean, from what I see portrayed on mm. on the media, in movies, you know, Netflix shows, caste is always depicted as something uh, that should mm. be abolished. Um, and so what, what, what are your personal feelings about it? You can try abolishing it, but it's a social practice that's been around for thousands of years. It yeah. is so deeply ingrained. I think, to be very honest, mm. it's a system because... Uh, even if you don't have a caste system, I'm being philosophical now, we already have things that are ingrained in our heads. You know, like in Singapore, even if I don't have the caste system, I see someone driving, say, a Bentley. Um, you automatically mm. think they are doing well in life and they are certain kind of people. And sometimes, mm. you know, when people are wealthy, you, you think, oh, yeah, yeah, they behave like that. So therefore because they're wealthy there's something that you accept that people who are wealthier are not say more educated but maybe um more well to do and are higher up in mm. class and society behave a certain way mm. therefore they have access to a certain lifestyle it's already ingrained in us and that's why we i feel that you know in singapore we are we want to be richer more educated, own a bigger yeah. home. So all these are symbols that we attach and it's already, it's not a caste system, but it's a system as, yeah. as humans, we, we already have. And if someone, you know, like the silliest saying, like, oh, don't, if you don't study, you know, that silly thing, you'll become a road sweeper. sweeper. Oh, yeah. yeah, so you already that. think, oh no, I don't want to become, it's, it's automatically you have already yeah. tiered people based on their jobs. But the class system, it's um, tearing people from birth, right? Yeah, based on occupation. Oh. Um, and it's a system, it's because it works, because you have the person, it's just a very, everybody has their box. Wow. Your father was... Uh, so it's like a craftsman kind of idea attached to it. Sort of. It's just everybody has a function in society. Mm. So if your father was a um, cleaner of mm. you know, toilets, you will always be... And to people who are, are of a lower caste, um, it is very much if you uh, something that, yes, because, okay, I, like, for example, like if my grandparents and my ancestors never escaped and left the social structures of India, mm. I would never be here uh, talking to you in English like this, yeah. uh, you know, exactly. or living in a home like this and having access to education. So, um, mm. because we left it and people don't want it because you're stuck in it. Um, but for mm. people who live there, it's very much how society functions. Um, so you can mm. say I banned something, but it's because it's a model that works for majority of people. It's something that mm. is very hard to eradicate. It's in everything. Um, mm. Unless you go there and you experience it. And people don't talk about mm. it. It's... Um, because they accept it. Yeah. Like, for example, when I was in the Deep South, uh, Madurai and uh, Chetinat area a few years ago, uh, we had a driver who brought us around. Mm. And when we went to the um, further down to Danish Kodi, where it's a tip, you know, meeting Sri Lanka, it's a stretch of land um, that's in, uh, been abandoned because there was long, long, quite a number of years ago, there was, I think, a tsunami mm. uh, that wiped out that area. So anyway, it's a sandbank and there are, Families have set up homes, not home, temporary, like shelters to cook seafood yeah. and for people who go there and eat, you know, like tea shops and all. So our driver was very hesitant for us to step into 
these huts mm. to eat. Um, and and for me, it's nothing because I don't have the psychological hurdle that they are different. Mm. I just want to understand and experience. But he was very uh, hesitant. Yeah. Um, and, be, and, and someone perhaps from India would never maybe go in yeah. because they are fishermen who are just cooking whatever catch they have simply on the stove. So when you walk past, you'll see fish sitting on the pan mm. and they cook. So, he, I mean, it's about the hygiene and it's people, the interaction with people who are different from who they are. Mm. Uh, and it's something that I, I, I remember because of his expression. He was just very puzzled why I would want to go into a <laughs> yeah. place that of someone he deemed maybe lower yeah. than him. Mm. So it's uh, some... And I've also, when I went to take a cooking class with a lady and she's a Brahmin, mm. And um, I talked to her and she says, it's very difficult to employ someone to clean your house and to clean your toilets. And I was very confused because I was like, why would you not clean the toilets if you're paid for it? Mm. She said, because you can employ people, um, but they will not clean your toilets even though they're cleaning your homes because they feel it's beneath them. Mm. So you can only get a person who is sort of, say, in the lower mm. caste, like untouchables or people who are suited for the job. Yeah. Um, so they would rather resign than actually be cleaning toilets. Mm, wow, it's so different yeah. from the yeah. culture in uh, in Australia where it's like egalitarian and all. It's very fascinating. And um, I just want to ask you if you feel that being in Singapore and not having this strong association with the caste system is an advantage for you because you know like what you said you're more willing to try different kinds of cuisines. You're willing to embrace mm. different kinds of cuisines because I do know that um, you know different groups like what you said different groups of people they have different kinds of cuisines attached to them so if i was from india and i would say i come from the north in the Nadu part of tamil Nadu, my food the food on my plate it'll be very different mm. whereas in singapore we don't have that kind of oh i cook a different kind of sambar my mom used to make this unless my mom is from india mm. then i have that strong connection but because most of us are here for three four generations yeah. we don't have that i i will eat only this type of sambar mm. it's become quite and I would say, um, sadly, I feel that Malaysian and Singapore Indian food has become quite homogenized. We don't have that kind of regionality. Uh, partly, like I said, it was because of our history and we didn't have time to think about all this regionality because we didn't have access to all these different ingredients. But uh, over time, it has become homogenous because we have relied very much on curry powders, mm. uh, which is a colonial uh, leftover of the convenience of curry powders. There's nothing wrong in that. It's just that it has become very, very... Um, uh, there's a lack of variety. Mm. So if you cook a chicken curry, funnily, sometimes the conversations in the market, they're like, oh, you cook chicken curry. Which curry powder do you use? Not what's your recipe. Mm. Because it's based on the curry powder and nobody knows what goes into the curry yeah. powder. So over time, we have lost... That, uh, and also because in the past we didn't have access to all these Indian blenders mm. so when you don't have recipes yeah. you just cook what's convenient so nobody knows what goes into say chicken yeah. curry and that has also been a very interesting part of my journey because we have Baba's curry powder or other kinds of patus and all that but then what really goes into chicken curry mm. uh, how many types of chicken curries are there there's yeah. so many mm. uh, and we don't have a singular, although it's becoming quite common in India to use mm. uh, like ready-made curry yeah. paste, but they're more of specific dishes. Yeah. 
And that's where you see the variations. Where in Singapore, we have meat curry powder. You don't quite see that. I see more of dishes. Like, for example, a biryani mm. masala, uh, a specific dish mm. masala, rather than a generic one powder for all yeah. meat curries. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. So, so for you, you know, I know that you shared a curry powder recipe on your site. And yeah. also like a, um, I think you make your own bodies, right? And all mm. these homemade um, yeah. spice blends and mixes. Yeah. yeah. And you mentioned how common and ubiquitous yes. things like Baba's curry powder or like yes. A1 curry is. So yeah. why make your own? Okay, when you have a blender and I mean Indian blender or a spice meal, you realize that actually when you make recipes based on the specific spices, you toast it and then you grind it on your own. The f- aroma and the flavor is completely different. Mm. Um, because of the, the nature of spices, the moment you grind them, uh, they come into contact with heat, their aromas are released, and they're good for that time when you make them. They're best, actually, the moment you grind them, even though they'll tell you it's good for six months. But the moment you, uh, even at six months, when you open the bottle and you smell it, it doesn't have the same kind of bouquet of aroma that you get from a freshly milled, you know, paste. Um, so when I, I do cook that way because I realize that actually you don't need a lot of spices when you grind your own masalas. Um, and I even I don't even buy uh, cumin or coriander powder because once and for practical reasons too because I it's just I cook for two people and so buying a giant pack of cumin makes no sense because I will never be able to finish it in say a month or two so I make my own small batch of uh, all these little spices like coriander and cumin and whatever masalas like even turmeric and I find that the flavor of the curry is very very different sorry how do you make homemade turmeric powder so you dry the root out and then you grind it so there are yes so there are if you go to the indian shops they will sell turmeric roots dried ones. uh yes dried ones ah. the, okay so i've discovered that because my my maternal grandparents used to make everything from scratch mm. and so when i was looking for the sambar that my grandma used to make I realized that no matter what I did, the aroma is so different. And I realized it's to do with the turmeric, especially in sambar. So sambar is actually a very, very complex dish. Mm. Uh, and um, it's impossible to get sambar outside that is good because it's overboiled and overcooked. Um, but uh, the turmeric makes a huge difference. The other thing that makes a huge difference is asafoetida. When you grind your own from the block, it, it's a humongous difference. Oh, wow. It's, they it's, actually yeah. sell blocks. Of yes, the gum itself, yeah. Oh. So when you cook vegetarian food, uh, because there's so few ingredients used and because the vegetables are the star of the dish, mm. everything that you add makes a huge difference. Mm. So the, the aroma from freshly ground, those the turmeric roots, is a huge difference because I do believe powdered turmeric has additives to it mm. um, because the way it stains my hand is very different. Yeah. Um, so the colour looks actually not as bright and exuberant as you get in powdered turmeric mm. it's a bit duller in color but the aroma is very earthy mm. and very like a root like you know when you break fresh turmeric it has that smell mm. which you don't get in powdered turmeric when you buy the packet yeah and is this a common ingredient in uh, singapore's wet markets or do you find it in special like indian grocers okay so in the past um um 
because I was so lucky to live with my grandparents. Uh, now I think about it. Um, there are two types of turmeric that are sold. One is the fat one that you use for your face, face pack. Mm. So my grandma used to have this little um, stand, a pedestal, a small one that's a bit rough. So you will grind mm. that turmeric on it to create fresh paste. The other turmeric root is the thinner one and that's used more for cooking. Um, mm. It is still sold at Indian shops. It's just that because people get turmeric powder, they have stopped grinding. And because you need a special grinder for the turmeric root, it's very hard. Uh, you need a spice meal. You can't use like a pretty blender? Can't. I've tried. It will spoil <laughs> because it's very hard. It's like rock solid. Okay. Uh, it's dried. But I guess you can dry your own turmeric and then you blend it and you mm. get the aroma. It's very, very different. Um, so mm-hmm. like if you marinate things with that turmeric and the smell, so like sambar has, even sambar masala powder has that turmeric and the mm. aroma wafting from your pot is completely uh, different. Yeah. yeah. So have you yeah. always been grinding your own spices or was that something that happened later in life? When I started cooking, I wasn't so uh, picky about all these things. I, I didn't even cook Indian food. I was very intimidated by Indian food because it looks like there's 10,000 steps. And when you ask people or even my grandma, when I started cooking because she has Alzheimer's and mom, uh, she wasn't very good at relating recipes because she cooks by memory. And because she lost her memory and over time, she just like, oh, you put this and she's very impatient. Mm. Uh, so I, I didn't really learn to cook from her. It's more of the memory of the, the flavors that I grew up with. My mom doesn't quite, I wouldn't say like cooking, but she's not that crazy passionate that, like I am. So mm. I, I never really learned from someone how to make it. Um, and I, I guess it's time too. So when I was living in Auckland for a year, I decided it's time because I had free time and while my husband was working. So I packed my Indian blender. I packed my KitchenAid. I, and I knew I had access to fresh spices because you can't import, bring in spices from in New Zealand, just like Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, so I cooked everything from scratch. I got recipes and I tried and then I worked out. And I, I was so intimidated by curries especially. Indian cooking is complex because you see, you don't have ready, ready-made paste. You don't have soy sauce or dark soy sauce to say, okay, I add more and then it will mask something that I can't do. Mm. If you don't brown out the onions, mm. especially for meat curries, it will taste so insipid and bad, like boring, the flavors. Mm. So where does the complexity come from? Uh, where does my grandma's curries, especially her vegetarian curries, how does she make it so aromatic? So when I went down the rabbit hole, I realized it's the little things that make a huge difference. Mm. The freshly ground asafoetida is a life changer um, for, for vegetarian cooking because it really rounds up the flavor and gives it that boost of that umami. So I realized that when I ground my own spices, you don't need 10 spices to make a curry mm. because each one carries, has his, uh, carries his own weight and packs a punch when you make it fresh. And yeah. it is more satisfying to eat the curry too because you don't need to add, say, uh, a lot of other things mm. it's simple clean flavors and then i got addicted because i to, to those flavors because i could never find that kind of flavor outside and it's something that i remember eating that way mm. uh, again because it's restaurant style food is so different from home cooking um yeah so i actually over time when i realized how easy it is to grind your own spices and keep I never bought uh, pre-ground ones. Wow. It changed the way I cooked completely. Mm. Yeah. 
I can imagine. Um, mm. You know, I mean, because I grind my own coriander and things like that mm. for nonya zhang, and yeah. it makes such a huge difference. Yes. Like the smell is so, like so floral and yes. so awake. You know, I don't yes. understand how people can eat like raw spices without yeah. without tasting anything. Yeah, yeah. So coriander is such a game changer because when you get like even like the quality of the coriander when it's fresh and it's slightly green and you toast it. Like you said, the floral aroma is so obvious, mm. and when you cook with it and you bloom it in uh, the oil, mm. your 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 curry is just so amazing. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Do you it's, think it's practical yeah. though for people to grind their own spices? You know, given that Indian cooking uses so many different kinds of spices, mm. do you think it's practical for people to source the whole spices, toast them, and then like grind them individually and store them? Okay, so for like. Uh, so this has been my journey too. So this is a question I ask myself as well. Um, over time, I okay. So when I started cooking, I cooked many things like pastas. I, I mean, I did many many things like Korean food and all that. And over time, my pantry has been dwindled to just Indian cooking stuff because there's no way I can keep up. I have no pantry space for all the things. Uh, <laughs> it's just practicality. Imagine. Yeah. So I just, I realized that because if I buy, buy powdered, like you said, practical, there are only a few things that you need for cooking Indian food. You have your whole spices, which you don't have to do anything, right? When you bloom mm. it in the oil in the beginning. But the ground spices are your basic cumin, coriander, and in South Indian food is the fennel, the South mm. Indian fennel. These are your basic three things. The rest... um. If you're making, for example, if you're making a biryani, mm. then you'll need a special uh, garam masala, which has 10, 15 ingredients. Mm. And that one I make beforehand and I store it in an airtight container. So all these things, um, over time, I've progressed to have a stash here. And to be very honest, if I'm going to make a small batch of coriander, I toast it, I let it cool and then grind it. It takes a total of, say, 15 minutes or an actual grinding is just minutes because mm. after toasting I will do something else prep and then I grind it and then it goes into my curry mm. it's so easy um, to me because I have a blender mm. if you don't have the Indian blender and I'm sure yeah. you you have Indian blender mm. life is very complicated because you'll be like oh I yeah. put so much yeah it's so easy with an Indian blender mm. even making rumpas I mean um Exactly. I, I don't understand why people struggle with that plastic blender, you know? Yeah, and then like, you know, your life is so much better when you yeah. go and buy an actual good, yeah. powerful blender. And that's something that um, I try to <laughs> uh, impart during my Tosa classes because when I show them, I think in Singapore, we this is something I've come to understand that people, they're not enough spokespeople for Indian food like champions. That's what I realized. Yeah. Yeah. To be say, no, I am object. I mean, I am proudly Indian. I only cook Indian food. I don't do other things. I mean, I've always asked this question. Do you actually go to a French chef and ask why he only cooks French food? Because mm. I get the question, do you only cook Indian food? Why would people ask that though? Because it feels like you don't have a repertoire. Like, you know, uh, I don't cook widely. Oh, mm. I think every chef cooks widely. Yeah. But you specialize eventually, isn't it? Yeah, but I mean, uh, I don't get people asking me, like, do you only cook Chinese food? I would find that so offensive. I think sometimes people don't understand uh, boundaries uh, yeah. in Singapore, especially the <laughs> certain generation. Uh, but I think because there's a preconceived idea that Indian food is not on par with, say, European cuisine 
or mm. Southeast Asia, you know, yeah. because because people what people understand of Indian food is your your dosa, your prata, chicken curry, fish, that, those basic things. So even when you talk about food writing out there, I don't know of any Indian food writers. Whereas in UK, UK is far ahead of the game um, because they have people and they love yeah. Indian food and there's a market for Indian food. Over here, Indian food is more like, mm, if I were to give you European food, Japanese food, I would rather mm. choose that. In fact, Korean food has become, you know, like the automatically yeah. tier is more popular. And I think it's because of familiarity and, and there are not enough champions of Indian food to say, Indian food is not all spicy. Mm. Indian food is not all masala and makes you yeah. feel heavy, you know, because that's not yeah. Indian food. But then what is Indian food? That's the yeah. next question. So who is cooking real Indian food at home and to say, oh, this is what I make. Yeah. Um, so there is a lack of, I feel there's a lack of pride in what we do. Um, but at the same time, we are very defensive or we will say, that's not Indian food. That's not mm. how you make it. Uh, then, But then when you ask, so how do you make it then? Yeah. Like the curry chicken. Oh my gosh, yeah. yeah. People will say that is not based on the visual or something. But then how do you mm. make it? Then they won't be able right. to tell you. Exactly. Yeah. So we are defensive, we are protective, we are passionate about food. But at the same time, we don't ask deep questions. What makes, say, a chicken curry a chicken I curry? I love that so much. I love that you're saying this because, you know, this saga has been yeah. so interesting to watch because, you know, like what you yes. said, half the people on there who are commenting probably don't even know what a rumpa is. Make. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but what is it? So just because they don't recognize it as a Singaporean chicken curry. But let me tell you that there are so mm. many styles of chicken curry. There's even a white mm. chicken curry. And if I say, if Clarissa cooked that, people would say that's not a Singaporean chicken curry. Then, okay, so what is Singaporean mm. chicken curry? Do we have one? And I think the consensus is, uh, people ask me what's a national dish in Singapore. The consensus is we can never have a national dish because it's very hard to represent one. But why seek for singularity when you're so mm. diverse? Um, and that's been my... Uh, I won't say battle, but it's something that I think about for in the Singapore Indian food. Why do we seek such a homogenous experience for Indian food when, and people don't read about Indian food too, even food yeah. writers, I would say, because, um, but then when you talk about, say, Italian yeah. food or Japanese food, they actually will give you specific yeah. names of dishes and how it's made. And I feel there are two sides to the coin. One is because there are not enough people talking about how we make Indian food. Very much, a lot of it is protected. It's a family recipe or basically they just don't know and they BS their way and say, oh, though, because that's not it. And there are not enough people, like, for example, it's so much easier, it's so much more accessible to learn Italian food because there are schools out there mm. teaching it. Um, whereas there's not a single Asian cooking school that I know of, like, passionately teaching, say, a mm. rumpa. Uh, but there are restaurants that do that. Uh, Bol has done that, Bolan. Um, there's so many other, but like to be passionate about, say, okay, no, why we do this. There are people who like, for example, David Thompson. I mean, he's a foreigner, but he yeah. learned it the, the mm -hmm. traditional way. But why aren't there schools yeah. for these I think cooking? that just leaves space for people like you and I to do our parts and to really use social media mm -hmm. to our advantage to reach the masses. Don't you agree? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. And the more you get into it, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, the more you realize there's so much mm. to it. I, I always say that 
there's not enough a lifetime to discover South Indian or Indian food. There is mm, just so exactly. much. Yeah. There's so much. I mean, even if I, I mean, I've asked this question, why do you not do Chinese food? Uh, why do you rather do Japanese mm. food? Uh, especially with young people this generation, they do so much about Korean and Japanese food because it's mm. trendy. It is seen as something that is, say, um, atas, mm. you know, like, wow, like sophisticated. Mm. But if you read about Japanese food or even Korean food, so much of their roots is from Chinese mm. cuisine. Uh, and the culture has been around for thousands yeah. of years. And so it's the same in China and India. People do things the same way for thousands of years. It has survived. And it's, it's, it is that... Um, Oh, the word escapes me because it's early in the morning. But it is so resilient and it's so uh, it, it stood the test of time in many, many... And it's mm. evolved. Like, you know, you have many, many reiterations yeah. of that same thing uh, changing. And so what you get now as a dish, say, of, say, chetinat pepper yeah. chicken is hundreds of years of evolution. Mm. Um, and, and it is sophisticated. Yeah. It is just that people don't take the trouble to go and do... And make things. So, and in making the spices from scratch, I realized that actually Indian food is completely different mm. from what you get outside. So, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you've expounded yes. a lot on the importance for people to to actually understand that Indian food is so diverse and so rich. Um, Very. So, how do you think we can get there? I think cooking is very mm. personal. Um, when, you know, you talk about amateur cooks, uh, and how they find it difficult to approach Indian food. I think you start at home. You cook what you like mm. to eat. When you, it's a motivating factor. If you say your grandma made this or your mom made this and you love it, cook it and read and research and make it better. Don't just say, I'm happy with this outcome. I feel it's important to keep pushing and say, how can I, you just, you can master just one recipe and make it again and again and you can make variations in it and you'll, if you know how to change it, um, that is already good enough. And I feel it's like it's not enough to say my grandma cooks the mm. best curry. Not mm. enough. Because I feel that you should learn uh, and make it your way and learn from her and maybe read up on what makes. Because you can learn so much by just going deep dive into ingredients, why she puts it in a certain sequence. Mm. What if you switched up the yeah. order? Like putting curry powder at the end and putting curry powder in the middle. How is it mm. different? Learn and take your time. I mean, some people feel that it's so... Like I get this uh, comment all the time when people come for torsa classes. They'll automatically say, My to I can't make torsa. I can't make perfection, mm. you know. And I think in Singapore, we have this huge anxiety to be perfect uh, cooks from the yeah. beginning. Why do you think that is so though? I mean, I, mean, I definitely... I think I it's our culture. That, but I'm just very curious about but it. I think it's our culture. To be the A-class um, student. We are, <laughs> yes. And also being perceived as someone who can't do something uh, because you don't want to. It is more of the safe face thing that mm. Asians have. Um, so when someone sees you and you feel, oh, you're wrong, it's also the way we were brought up. Our parents, you know, like uh, they thought, you know, that's wrong rather than saying it's a process. Because cooking is a skill set. Yeah. So I, I don't think Michael Phelps felt that he was an Olympic swimmer the moment yeah. he jumped into yeah. the pool. Yeah, I think it's the whole idea of being comfortable with being an amateur, right? Yes, why not? I, I have no problem saying I'm a home cook. I'm mm. not a chef. Mm. Um, I also feel that home cooking 
doesn't have a champion because people feel, wow, restaurant is so amazing. Great. You can, you know, do whatever you want, the mm-hmm. theatrics and, you know, grow things out of a box and put espuma and things like mm-hmm. that. But when it comes down to, I mean, I, I just don't understand when you interview chef, they always say my grandma's food and my mom's food mm-hmm. and my so-and-so's food. Yeah. But yet that food never gets the uh, attention it deserves. Mm. Why is home cooking seen as something that is not as good as restaurant food? Mm. I think people view it in a very different way. Like mm. they would think of restaurant food as an experience where like you, you put out a lot of sure. money for and then like with home cooking, it's always comfort and then like nostalgia. Sure. And so I think, you know, like when people have guests over, yeah. They, they don't necessarily want to convey that kind of comfort and nostalgia. They want to like, you know, have that kind of theatric experience. Or at least yeah. that is what I perceive from the perspective of a Singaporean. It's like, sure. we have made home cooking into this experience where it has to be on, on par with private home yes. dining. Yeah, uh, that's a very interesting point you brought up. Uh, if you see the type of private dining that's coming up as well. It's all fine dining um, mm. experiences. I I feel we've lost touch with who we are and what we are cooking. Um, and I think social media has a part to play because uh, the experience and putting things up on Instagram has become a very important part of dining. Mm. So if... I'm not having a pigeon flown in from, say, Faroe Islands. It's not something that I boast about to people. It becomes a bragging right. You know, yeah. I, I get that. And because we're stuck here in Singapore, I really get that. Because, But then you have a whole range of cooking uh, experiences. Yeah, There's something that a chicken soup can give you that a pigeon from flown in from somewhere will mm. never give you that. And I think the pandemic has taught people, and in fact, restaurants are realizing that I would never, like having fine dining at home where mm-hmm. they uh, cooked and you you brought home the takeaway, it has no effect um, because it doesn't have the ambience and all. So mm-hmm. what are you paying for? You're paying for that service. Mm-hmm. I, I, I completely get that. But mm-hmm. it's not to say home cooking is not as good as restaurant mm-hmm. because they are excellent home cooks. The techniques, go for the techniques, you know, cook based on uh, science, understand why the dish Mm. is made this way. Just go deep into it, not just say, this is my recipe and I'll make it that way. Exactly. I Like, yeah. it's like, okay, like for example, um, I mean, just be an ultimate capo really because if you look at curries, like even changing up, for example, a simple thing like changing up green cardamoms for black cardamoms Mm. will completely change your dish. Yeah. Uh, and then it's not three to, is to three because black cardamoms, and depends on which kind of black cardamoms you use, mm. are very potent mm-hmm. uh, and they're strong. So these kind of things people don't think about because people don't think that cooking is complex. But it doesn't mean complex means you can't approach it. You know, it's just like a problem sum. You break it down. Cook something simple that you make at home, like even a bihun or fried rice. Mm. Like it's an art to make fried rice with rice grains that are separate. Mm, yeah so you need the correct uh, cooking vessel you need the rice not cooked until it's mushy mm. uh, if you go and read books that are so technical like um, you know Eileen Lowe's book and mm. so many books uh, they go into the technicality of it and yeah. people don't think about these things because they want a quick result 
Mm. They want to throw everything in and say, why is my, you know, like a fantastic dish. Mm. Uh, but fried rice is a great dish to master yeah, because exactly. it's it's so versatile. And yeah, and I think that people feel that it's very out of their reach. You know, things mm. like fried rice, tose, they'll think to themselves, why should I spend time mastering this when I can go down to yep. you know, sure. the neighborhood eatery yeah. and get it for like $2. $2. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that has been a revelation for me too. Um, one of the reasons why I make dosa really um, from scratch is because I can never get that dosa outside. Mm. It's under-fermented uh, always. And it is for practical reasons that restaurants under-ferment things. The ratio is different. And in restaurants, it's all about showmanship. So about the look of it, the golden mm. color, the crispiness, and all these things is a restaurant thing. But actually, when you make... a Tosse um, from scratch at home, and you ferment it in its uh, for its entire length. The complexity of the tosse is mind blowing. Mm. Yeah, and you get like that satisfaction, right, from feeling the the batter as you mix it and watching sure. it rise. Right, it's just like sourdough in a way. But I don't understand why people view it differently. Uh, well, because. I think Singaporeans just are intimidated by many things if they feel that it's difficult. Mm. So if you break down into steps and you, they, they try it, uh, they feel, I mean, the experience of someone just guiding them, they need that. They're, I don't think many people are like us where they say, okay, I want to make this, so I will just try my hand. Mm. They're more fearful of how it will not work out. Mm. Um, yeah, this huge fear of failure, right? In our culture. Yes, yeah. And if you cook only once a week, yeah, it is difficult mm-hmm. because cooking is a skill that if you even if like I don't cook for a few days and I feel uneasy. Mm. It's just something that comes very naturally. But if you cook for a hobby and you mm. want to make something that maybe this chef made and you want to to turn turn out, then yeah, uh, you will have difficulty making simple things because you don't approach it by technique or logic. Yeah. To me, I see it as putting the reps in, right? Just like with Mm. exercise, I feel that what really changed my cooking and upped my cooking game wasn't, you know, me being a restaurant chef. It was Mm. me getting married and having to put food on the table every single day. Yeah. And I feel that it's really that, you know, it's really building up that muscle that people don't understand. You know, they always think of it as like an innate skill, but it's not. Yeah. But I partly feel that it's also what else there in the media because people when they talk about cooking they're like oh because my grandma was such a great cook everyone has the same story uh like as if you're some expectation to live up to so like a people person like me where i didn't have someone to learn from i felt very scared to approach it because i had no one guiding me you know Mm. to pass on recipes i don't have family recipes Mm. so like you said to put food on the table because you are sort of forced into a corner but you could have chosen the easy way out you see Mm. Yeah. Uh, and you realize that your cooking has shifted over time. Yeah. And in the beginning, it's more about making things edible. Mm. So, you know, you survive that night and you don't yeah. die from food poisoning. And eventually, you, you learn. Yeah. Um, I think yeah. for me, before I got married, it was very much like a weekly kind of thing. Like, mm. oh, let's see what is nice on Instagram. You know, it looks, yes. looks nice. Yes. And then yes. I'll try to execute the same yes. thing. But after getting married, you know, when you have to do it as a routine, you yeah. know, as a daily practice, then it becomes very different. It becomes more yes. like, okay, how can I stretch my meal? Yes. You know, meal planning. I, exactly, yeah. meal planning. And I think that is 
there is no substitute for that. You cannot go to like a cooking class yeah. and master it, you know, yes. in one sitting. Yeah. But often what I tell people is if you are making something new, choose a day that you're not hassled and busy, you know. Mm-hmm. Give yourself the time to read, break down and take your time to make it. And then when you really have to make it, then keep making it again and again mm-hmm. and again. Yeah. Um, and then you'll get better. You, you know, I, I feel that it's not necessary to cook so many dishes. Uh, mm-hmm. If you have 10 dishes you have at the back of your hand and you do it, or even five dishes, you do it really, really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's something that you make and it's perfect for home cooking. It's You're a very good cook, I mm-hmm. feel. Um, and I feel that's what, because I, okay, my greatest heroes are actually these Indian home cooks. They don't have any resources that I have mm-hmm. or the tools that I have. And they churn out meals that are simple and really delicious with what they have. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, extremely affordable. Yeah. Indian cooking is spectacular that way. It is so easy, accessible, and then you have pantry stable items that will never spoil and they you know, like dal's. Dal's was an amazing revelation. Like if you cook it slowly, it's amazing what you can make from something that looks so humble, isn't it? Mm. And I, I, I'm, I'm just blown away by the simplicity yet complexity of home mm. cooking if you approach it. So if you cook every day, you realize that you also can't be making food like restaurants and what's nice because it's just after that, it's just too much washing up, <laughs> too too expensive. Yeah. And like, you'll be going mad shopping every day, you know, exactly. like, you have no time. So yeah. how do you plan? And how also, do you plan your fridge? Yeah, and also I guess restaurants have access to all these wonderful produce yeah. and they yeah. have a brigade supporting of them. People. Yeah, yes. I, I remember when I was cooking from cookbooks and these were like, you know, cookbooks from the West, right? Yeah. You know, you go to the supermarket, you can't find the ingredient. Yeah. And if you can find it, it's like super expensive, right? Yes. So yes. why not cook? Southeast Asian, you know, that's something that I'm really, um, you know, trying to push for because I feel that people don't understand the richness of what we have in Singapore. Yeah. Mm. Um, I think people feel generally in Singapore that if it's expensive and it's premium ingredient, then the food is good. Mm. I mean, I understand that restaurants have the philosophy where ingredients if you pay for the ingredient but that's a restaurant mm. where they have access like you said and there's someone cleaning the fish for them and slicing they're different different people doing different jobs mm. if you're doing that at home i mean it's a lot of work mm. uh, not to mention a lot of cleaning up really it's about the amount of cleaning up time mm. that you will be doing um and, and how much time are you going to devote to your day cooking yeah exactly if you're a cook, that's your job, yeah. you see. But if at home, there's so many other things to do. So yeah. if cooking is not, say, a priority, how do you make something that is simple yet very, very versatile mm. and delicious? I love that. And how do you how do you shop in your supermarket or market? Is mm. something is a skill too? Um, I used to be intimidated because I don't like markets, although I went to markets when I was younger with my grandma. But I realized to be a cook, good cook, you need to know your produce. Mm. So there's no tool, no way out because my end goal was to become a better cook. So I will get there. So I don't mind the wetness. So I just buy better shoes. Uh, I love you the know. attitude. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you have to, right? If you want to learn something and it's a process, but then you realize that actually there's so much in the market. Even in a supermarket, how do you, say, buy one vegetable and cook it different ways? 
mm. because oftentimes you'll buy a big bunch. So then you have to learn recipes for that one vegetable. How mm. do you buy? And then I realized, you know, even seasonality matters when you buy produce mm. as well. And there's so many things you can make from just ingredients that are so cheap. Yeah, exactly. And I so good. Agree. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and but I think it's just this thing in Singapore where it's cheap mean it's not as good. Like ikan bilis, right? Seriously, it's so delicious. It is. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it's an item that I have all the time. But it's only after the the pandemic that I started making so many things with ikan bilis. How do you say, for example, you can fry it? You can blitz it to make it into like fine powder and you make it in the beginning when you cook. You mm. can add that to your rice. You can add that to other things. Mm. Uh, there's even like uh, in, in, in Indian food, they use that uh, to boost chutneys in Kerala. Mm. So they actually fry it and they add it to the like chamandi. Ooh. So it an instant umami flavor yeah. for, for like a few cents, mm. you know. And you don't have to add like, I don't know, something from somewhere that you pluck that like it must be amazing. Mm. Um, and so it... Generally, when people eat food like that, it blows their mind. I find that if you are cooking simple food that's done very well, it's amazing mm-hmm. as well if you make it very properly, like mm-hmm. from scratch. Yeah. You don't need a lot. Um, and that's the same thing. It comes back to the blending of spices. I don't need 10 spices to cook a dish. Mm, exactly. Yeah. You at all. Um, because I find the flavors are actually is harder to cook with many spices. Mm. I think it's all about, you know, getting the your balance. basics right and your yeah. foundation and then building from there. And then you yes. slowly build your pantry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And then the other thing about Indian food is that um, <laughs> because they feel that you must have one curry and say maybe three side dishes. Mm. But I decided that's just not going to happen for me mm. because I'm not going to follow what other people will tell me is good for me. Mm. I do what works for me. So that's something that amateur cooks need to learn to say, uh, this is what the time I have. So this is what I will learn. So even if you can make 30, uh, in 30 minutes, you can make many, many dishes. Mm. I meaning like, as in, sorry, uh, dishes that are 30 minutes and you have many in your repertoire. Mm. There you go. You can cook. Yeah, exactly. So you don't need, yeah. So you, you don't need to make like laborious dishes. That's the other yeah. thing. Like people come to me and ask like, you know, like rendang and all that. But why would you cook a rendang in half an hour? It's meant to be cooked in hour, for hours. Yeah, exactly. I think. Why do you do that? Yeah. And you can't eat rendang every day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, and I think for people like us, it's really putting ourselves in a position where we can empathize with where they're coming from and their mm. point of relevance in a way, you know, like what is relevant for them. Because, you know, when I first started Singapore noodles, it was always like these really laborious dishes. Not yeah. because, you know, I, I, I purposely chose them that yeah. way, but because that's how I, I, I mean, it was my own natural curiosity, right? Yeah, what but, they are. Yeah, but yeah. after a while, I did feel that, you know, I had to mix it up a little bit because I need to understand where people are coming from, you know. Not mm. everyone has this, this kind of like, you know, insane curiosity about food sometimes people yep. just want to put dinner on a table yes yeah um and good simple meals and mm. yeah and there's nothing wrong with yeah, that and i think wrong. a lot of people who start their families and their new homes yeah. they want to make um yeah yeah so that's something i've been working on too even with indian food like but i would say both our experiences are quite similar because you, because you learn to cook and then you you used to make restaurant yeah. dishes, but then you turn, you become a more simple cook. But because yeah. you have honed your skills mm. in your techniques, mm. so even stir frying dishes can be very delicious. Mm. Like an omelette, uh, 
<clears throat> a vegetable dish and a soup is yeah. enough in a way in some sense. Yeah. Um, I, I yeah, think, but I think people, you know, when when they become experienced cooks, they do steer away or shun simple dishes because yeah. of that stereotype that simple is shortcut, which is you know uh, second rate. Because you know you you associate it with celebrity chefs, right? Like Nigella, uh, like like Jamie Oliver, and then you always feel like oh, you know they are targeting the masses, and so they are uh, offering what is you know simple, but you know not necessarily like the most delicious, the most delicious yeah. version of a dish. But then after a while, you know, I feel that the more you cook, the more confident and the more um, at ease you are in your own skin then mm. you, you are able to accept that, oh, you know, actually what is simple can also be very delicious and can also yeah. be very beautiful. And I think that is the huge, like a huge mindset shift that I had. Yeah. yeah. Similar. I mean, I had a similar experience as well. Um, <clears throat> first of all, Nigella is amazing. Uh, mm, I think I love Nigella. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I cooked from her Christmas book and I realized, wow, she really guides her voice. She guides you and she makes it accessible. Mm. And she doesn't, she makes you feel like you can't put this feast together mm. um, because for someone who has never cooked a Christmas feast, I was like, wow, her recipes are not say amazingly delicious, mm. but they're good enough to put on the table. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, but I think what people don't think about is actually menu planning. If you, if you plan a menu, let's say you want to throw a feast, not everything on the table has to be a sophisticated, complicated dish. Mm. Because it doesn't shine then. Because you need supporting players. Yeah. So simple dishes do that. They do that. That whole like I need a reprieve from that richness. Exactly. Yeah. You know, but as a meal, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So you can't have everything that's rich. Yeah, I completely uh, agree. Like, so there was this yeah. restaurant. Um, I'll tell you the name later. But <laughs> there's this restaurant that everyone loves, and uh, I went. And it was like every single meal, uh, every single dish was an assault on the senses. You know, mm. it was like pow, 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 like a lot of flavor, a lot of yeah. things going on. And I'm like, you know, after all of this, I just want to have a simple soup or like a mm. simple bowl of porridge, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. I, I think it's balancing the two, your desire as a as a cook who is always challenging herself, you know, that chefy part of, of, of mm. you, right? Yeah. And mm. also the motherly grandmotherly kind of in- instinct where you want to nourish you want people to feel satisfied at the end of the meal so i think as a cook it's always balancing the two yes mm. uh, it depends on what kind of cook you want to be as yeah, well true, true. yeah i mean i think in a way the disadvantage of having a chefy background is that you're always thinking about how i can elevate it mm. yeah <laughs> so true yeah like how can i make it better you know so you overcomplicate things yeah. and the truth is less is more it, yeah when you eat it can you actually register all those flavors that you mm. put inside that you took mm. hours to make or cure or anything if you mm. can't then what am i eating exactly uh, it's just a selling point that you put hours into it but sometimes rest restaurant operates on a very different level because mm. they're selling the food and they want to please so many kinds of palates and yeah. And it's about the price point. I mean, how do you charge someone for like a uh, taipeng, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, but there are restaurants that are very bold uh, that are, say, vegetable forward mm. and do things very simplistically as well. Mm. Um, but it's ultimately about the philosophy of the chef who's making things. Mm. Agreed. And, uh, and I feel the age of a chef 
I feel like an old person saying this, will reflect that too. Because I think as I age, I tend to draw back and cut down on all those complexity. Mm. Because when you're eating, even if it's very complex, if I can't taste it, then I've wasted my time. Mm. You know, it's overly complicated. Yeah. High five. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, too, it's too many things. So if I can't, and, I, and then at the end of the meal, I'm like, I don't understand what I just ate. Mm. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I like being wild in a restaurant. Mm. At the same time, I also like to eat for food. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, and, I guess uh, for you, like that was a bit jarring in your, I, I'm just assuming uh, for your MasterChef experience. I mean, because for MasterChef, every dish that you put out has to be like lots of bells and whistles and like lots going way, on. Yeah. Yeah. And like elevated. Yeah. But it's a very interesting, it forced me to think differently mm. because I never thought about plating. Mm. And see, a simple dish, if let's say I grill a leek, but I plate it and I choose the right plate, can become a beautiful dish. Mm. How you add things on top to layer it. Mm. It's not, uh, I find elevating is a word that is a bit difficult because it's not like it's not elevated. It's how you layer flavors mm. that complement each other yeah. and make a simple dish really uh, wow mm. for the eyes. And yeah. I think I've, MasterChef has taught me that visual is important mm. because sometimes it's not about the complicated flavors. It's what you take in with your eyes and your nose. The first. whole experience, right? Yes. If you make a biryani, you'll realize that because in Singapore, yeah. the biryani is an assault on the senses. But when you make a sim- the, the simple, clean, and the rice and the meat shine, it's an experience because you keep going back to it and eating again oh and God. again. <gasps> Yeah, I only started making biryanis this year, you know, when I was working on seasonings, like gleaning all the tips from everyone. And it was such a beautiful experience. It's very intuitive, right? Like you have to taste throughout and then you have to trust your own senses as a cook as well. And then the last moment when you release the lid, I mean, you don't have that when you order a biryani in a restaurant. In Singapore. (laughs) Yeah. um, In India, when they have, when you have like biryani restaurants, they only sell biryanis if you if they make good ones um because if you put together a biryani you know it's so labor intensive because Mm. there's so many different layers that go into it Mm. um and over here nobody does that because people want to order many many things with a biryani i Mm. feel a biryani is a separate tier of food uh on its own Mm. because it's it's i won't say it's a dish it's many dishes put together and the skill set required to make a biryani is like an accumulation of all the cooking skills actually mm. yeah um, it is yeah it is it is really when i did the deep dive yeah. i was like oh my god you have to think about so many things so like, many you have to think yeah. about flavoring the rice cooking water you have to soak the rice properly yeah. even choosing the right rice is like a skill in itself yeah right? Yeah. Even then, I mean, if you look at the biryani recipes across India, there's so many mm. ways of changing yeah. up the flavors. So many. And so many ways Some of people, layering it as well. Yes, so many. And and so many different ways of flavoring. Um, and also the, philo- I mean, uh, not philosophies, but the, the, the principle of the biryani. For mm. example, like um, the Persian influence ones in the north, mm. the aroma of the biryani is extremely important. Mm. Um, so the top note of your rose mm. and that kevara, that pandan essence is something so that when you open the lid, yeah, you get that waft of that everything. And yes. that 
you know, it, that's a mission Insta experience, actually. Yes, I agree. <laughs> I completely agree. <laughs> that is something like, wow. I mean, I'm sure, how can you not be wowed by that steam coming out and you smell that? It's just, it makes me salivate even if I'm not uh, hungry. Yeah. Um, and that, and then the rice, it's yeah. cooked as though there was like nothing done to it. It's yeah. so light. Yeah. Um, which is something you don't get in biryanis in Singapore. It's yeah. too heavy. Mm. It's overly masala. Yes. Because they want their curry. Exactly. But the rice is so, it looks plain. Mm. But when you eat it, because it's been sitting with the meat, the flavor is just so amazing. It's it's yeah. it's unparalleled. I feel it's a dish that is yeah extremely sophisticated as well. I completely agree. I recently yeah. read about a biryani with the meat cooked in cream, and I was mm. like so fascinated. I think they call it yakni, um, yakni. biryani. And yakni is the stock base. Yeah, like um, I was watching a documentary and I was reading uh, Matt Onion Slicer on Instagram. Like, I think he went yeah. to India and he was writing about how he was able to go into the kitchen and see how the meat being prepared. And I was mm. like, oh my God, I, I have to try this. Like, it's so fascinating. I mean, there are so many variations anyway in India, right? There's a book written just on biryani. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there are. <laughs> there, is, no, there is one book. I mean, okay, the, the, the measurements are a bit of a pain, but yeah. uh, it's just the range and how people interpret and when you go to the deep south the biryani yeah. is completely different because yeah. we use a different rice mm. we use the short grain yeah. stickier rice is that uh, the jira samba rice yeah. jira samba yeah. rice yeah. yeah so it's short grain and stickier because that's a rice that's grown there and it's a special mm. rice and then the aroma is different and then it reflects the regional palate yeah because in the south we like things that are a bit heavier yeah. uh, on the masala mm. because of the climate and things but then you get uh, the masala that they add the the aromats mm. that you have are completely different. Mm. Um, different appreciation for different kinds of flavors. Yes. And yeah. that one doesn't use a barista, the fried onions and all mm. that. But onions are a big part of the cooking process. Yeah. So it's so fascinating. I mean, I think one can just do a, thesis. a whole thesis <laughs> on biryanis. Yeah, and the thing is, I, I just wish Singapore more Singaporeans knew about and, and are fascinated about you know different parts of Indian cuisine and I feel that you're a really strong advocate and for, for that I, I feel very grateful to have someone like you in Singapore who's doing mm. so much and, and really pushing this narrative forward um, so where can people find out more about you and what can we expect from you in the new year um, are we still in the new year but yeah it's February but <laughs> 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 but yeah great question um, I think uh, going forward because last year I took my time to uh, just do Thorse classes mm-hmm. at home yeah. to get my grounding and to understand. Um, going forward, I think this year I will be having more, not more classes, but more classes that teach skill-based, like Thorse is a skill. Uh, and through and things like I, I'm planning to have a biryani class as well, just mm-hmm. biryani, mm-hmm. Uh, one style of biryani. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still thinking how to work within the time limit, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, so more classes. Yeah. <laughs> Working with time limit. Time limit, yeah. And I'm slowly, I'm, I'm only doing it quietly, but now that I mention it, it will become big. But um, <laughs> I'm doing a little bit of pri- like private dining, but on a just focusing on foods that you cannot get so much in restaurants. Mm. and Or even if you get in restaurants, but done in a very the proper way, yeah. without any shortcuts, um, to show the like simple food, but complex. Mm. And you're That's also writing a cookbook? 
Is that happening? In a while. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't know whether it'll be a cookbook. I, I, okay, I'm doing research on what is Malaysian and Singapore Indian food. Mm. And um, because we're going to be here for a while, and I thought, why not explore what really makes the food to go into the background of um, the labor. Mm. I mean, the food of the labor, uh, the plantations, the immigrations, the wave, the, the earlier wave rather than the newer wave. So you're talking about very much about what they had access to and, and the stories... Uh, that I've gotten so far, very, very interesting. Uh, mm. I think it needs a voice because people don't talk about it, even though everyone's lived in experience with their grandmas is about mm. many, I won't say everyone, about plantation stories. Mm. Uh, and uh, so many interesting, just fascinating stories about, uh, what would you call this, simple workman food, uh, mm. basic food. I just, I just want to people to take ownership that, your history is important too. It doesn't mean that your food that is not like sophisticated, I mean, I mean what people think is sophisticated mm. or what people think is from India. Therefore, I don't feel the sense of pride for it because it's made with things that are like canned food. But why not? I mean, food is very much, if you come down to the basic, mm. it's just about sustenance, isn't it? And, and that's, that food has a story. And if you don't highlight it, then you're saying that the lived-in experiences of all these people for decades is not mm. worth talking about. And I feel mm. that we need to own that. That so yeah. what if I ate canned food? I think it's something, it's a Singaporean thing to not talk about things that are maybe... Uh, low class. Like lower... <laughs> yes, what you would deem as low class. You know, like a... Yeah. Like Teochew porridge, you know, like the, mm. the, the, the offcuts and all that. Like, why must you luxuriate and add uni and things like that just to make it amazing? Ah, I like shaved black truffles. Yeah, <laughs> I, I can't. I just can't. I mean, yes, it's great, but I'm so tired of seeing it everywhere. But uh, I mean, ask the hard questions why we are who we are mm. and take ownership and pride in it. And I think that is about embracing your diversity as well. It's yeah. not enough to say, you know, my food is not being represented. I feel that, I mean, this is for all Indians. I feel it's not enough to say Indian food is not being represented. I feel that you need to come up and talk about it. Mm. Love that. You, yeah, you need to do it. You can't complain that other people aren't doing it. Why not do it yourself? Yeah. I mean, why not talk about your experiences, your grandma? Yeah. Talk and you will find that there are very interesting stories. And it's yeah. hard. People yeah. don't want to talk about it. Uh, I, I think that's a, the biggest takeaway that I've got from this conversation is that mm. people should stop complaining and start actually doing something. Doing it, yeah. Just like what you're so, doing. <laughs> yeah, but like that's why people ask why you're not making other kinds of Indian food. I said it's because I wish there are more Gujaratis or Punjabis or Maharashtrians who come up. There's so many kinds of Indians in Singapore mm. uh, who come up and talk about their food. And not say, oh, I, I, my food is not being represented. Mm. Because seriously, social media, anyone can represent yourself. Exactly. Uh, More people talk should about, step up. Yeah. Mm. It's, it doesn't have to be a big thing. Mm. Exactly. Just to be a voice. You know, like, it's only recent that we talked about Pranakan Indian food, uh, mm. the Chitti Malakans. Mm. Um, so social media has been fantastic about giving voices to people yes. who otherwise don't come up in the mainstream and i feel mm. that more people are more aware that there are other people out there mm, you know yeah um and i think do it yourself 
just mm. just write about it and the process yeah. and it doesn't have to be perfect this whole idea mm. of perfection is i don't know who you're trying to please mm. uh, but you have to just try something simple then build your confidence and work up yeah. you know and just cook yeah it doesn't i don't understand too what why cooking is intimidating just cook to feed yourself mm. Yeah, you know. I really love this conversation that we're having and I feel that, you know, the points that you're making are ones that really resonate with me and I, I could mm. probably go on talking to you for hours and yep. I just feel like every time we chat, um, it's really a, a huge pleasure because we are so aligned. And so mm. I, I really thank you for what you're doing and uh, thank you for coming on the podcast and have it, been wanting to have you on for the longest time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my must apologize. Last year has been was i'm glad it's over mm-hmm. a bit of a yeah too busy. many things yeah i wouldn't say busy there were too many other things to navigate mm. uh, and so sitting down and talking and getting clarity in my ideas is not something yeah. that i was really sit, uh, i mean willing to do and mm. had time for in a space yeah. i feel to do to do the podcast justice i need to have clarity of what i was doing as mm. well yeah uh, but last year was too much um well, yeah, it, things going it on. definitely seems like you have hit your stride now. Like, I'm really excited yeah. to see, you know, you hold more classes and do your, hopefully, the cookbook because I feel that such a resource is so important in Singapore. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, ho- I hope, yeah, to do more research on that. And you'll know in a few years, two yeah. years, hopefully, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for coming on yeah. the podcast. Yeah, and thank you for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Vasunthara Ramasamy, a culinary teacher and MasterChef Singapore contestant. We now stand at the crossroads where we are witnessing the vanishing of traditional dishes and the erosion of our rich food culture. Now more than ever, we have to encourage one another to get back into the kitchen to start cooking food from our heritage. Singapore Noodles is offering a membership that equips you with everything that you'll need to start cooking local. Visit sgpnoodles.com to find out more. Once again, thank you for listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast where we look forward to a world where Singaporeans are proud of our rich and diverse food culture and take an active role in keeping traditions alive.